Welcome to the Women Shifting Gears podcast driven by Hemmings. This is your home for inspiring conversations with women leading the way throughout the automotive spaces. I'm your host, Amanda Busick, and the power of this podcast is in the strength of this community. We believe that high tides rise all ships into each of you collaborating together to steer this ship. We see you, we recognize you, and we salute you. It's time to set sail. Another episode of Women Shifting Gears starts now. Born and raised in Western North Carolina, veteran motorsports writer Deb Williams knew from an early age she was different. She knew she had a drive inside to prove to everyone she encountered that she was capable and qualified not only as a woman, but as the best possible person for a position. Deb spent the bulk of her career covering NASCAR in the decades most would consider to be the golden years alongside Richard Petty, Dell Earnhardt, and even witnessing the emergence of Jeff Gordon. In our interview with Deb, we journey through a professional career that has given the award-winning journalist such a life full of lasting memories and experience. You will hear firsthand in Deb's voice just how much these moments have meant to her. Your Women Shifting Gears podcast, driven by Hemmings, starts now. On this week's Women Shifting Gears podcast, driven by Hemmings, we're joined by Deb Williams. She's a veteran motorsports writer and an award-winning writer at that as well. And Deb, I want to go back to the beginning. I, I read during your bio that you knew immediately you wanted to be in motorsports. Why is that? Well, I was a race fan. My parents were race fans, and they were actually attending races but when mother was pregnant with me. And the only place they could get me to quit crying and sleep until I was a year old was in the infield under the loudspeaker <laughs> at the Asheville Weaverville track when it was dirt just outside Asheville, North Carolina. So my dad was a machinist and I enjoyed his love of cars and he always had me with him. But I was taught that if you're unhappy with something or you don't sit around and grumble about it, you get up and do something about it. So I was angry at all the statistical errors I kept finding in the racing stories that were in the local news daily newspaper I grew up on, which was the Asheville Citizen. And I decided that, you know, I wanted to be a motorsports writer. I kind of had to alter that and say be a sports writer, preferably a motorsports writer. I couldn't be so narrow until after several years in the business. But I knew at age 13 that was what I wanted to be. Sounds like that uh, your entire childhood was around motorsports in that community. Describe that. I, did you share the passion of the competition with your family as well, or just the community side? Well, there were several things. First of all, I grew up in a paper mill town in Western North Carolina named Canton, which is where my dad was a machinist for 44 years. And there were two big things in the Canton area. One was football. And the other was cars, you know, and um, my cousins were into automobiles as well. Bosco Lowe, who a lot of people probably remember driving in the Bush series. Bosco was in high school with my sister and Bosco and I, one of my cousins were always around together. They had the club called the Asphalt Gladiators in Canton. And it was a club of teenagers that were really interested in cars and they were to help motorists if they were stranded on the highway or they always put on the annual car show for the Labor Day celebration. And my cousin actually went the show car circuit. So I was my dad's son and daughter. So I grew up around car garages, service stations, ball fields, horse shows. And, you know, by the time I could, as soon as I could sit on the hood of the car and wipe 
the cleaner and wax off when he was waxing the car. He had me sitting on the car. And I was always interested in the mechanical end of it. And of course, I'm a highly competitive person as well. So those two things, you know, I looked at it as, first of all, that then men, now men and women, could take their minds and their hands and build these engines and these cars to do what they did was fascinating to me. And then, of course, since I'm such a highly competitive person, it's like I will never condemn a driver for doing something that I know I would do in the exact same situation. And it was a a car culture. You know, when I was growing up, just about all teenagers had a hobby stock or something. They ran at the local track. That's what they talked about during the week. And you'd go by service stations in the Asheville area and the Canton area and all. And you'd always see a weekly race car sitting in the bay that they would work on after work. Did you ever have the bug to go racing? I learned really quick that the first time I ever drove a race car, it was not what God intended me to do. (laughs) (laughs) He intended me to write about it. I uh, like that you mentioned and described yourself as highly competitive. Uh, Looking through your list of accolades, uh, it's clear that uh, you are a dedicated individual to your craft. Back when you were younger, let's say that 13-year-old that knew they wanted to go into motorsports, did you know you were different? Yes, particularly when I had the high score in the ninth grade on the chapter on internal combustion engines and all the guys in the class got mad at me for it. Uh, it, it, it really hurt their ego that a female scored higher than they did on the internal combustion engine chapter in physical science in the ninth grade. But I, was, I knew I was different in that I knew what I wanted. A lot of the people I was in school with didn't, but I knew. You took your talents to East Tennessee State University, ETSU. What was your time like at the university? Of my 16 years in school, those were my four happiest. I uh, really, really enjoyed it there. And it was far enough away from home, but not too far. So during the gas crisis of the 1970s, I didn't have as much trouble getting home. But the thing that I loved about East Tennessee State I got to find out who I was as a person and I got to separate what my parents believed in their values and determine what my beliefs and my values were. And I got to know people from all over the country. I developed a friendship with a woman who was a midwife in Australia and she actually came home with me for a weekend. It was a really a growing period for me as a person. And uh, it was just a wonderful time with all the activities and traveling with the drill team, traveling with the band. Uh, I got my first plane ride when I was president of the (laughs) Professional Journalism Society to go to Philadelphia for the national convention. Deb, I want to go back to to that time you were for East Tennessee State University. I believe you were class of 1976. Uh, I want to point out that you're also a female in all of this, pursuing journalism and and getting these accolades within your university and college. Uh, Was it strange for there to be a woman in the position that you were in at that point? It was right as women were starting to break through in, in very a lot of areas. So I was on the cutting edge of when they were starting to look 
for women uh, to be in different areas. When I was in Army ROTC in the 70s, that was right at the time that the Army was integrating women into the regular Army and getting rid of the Women's Army Corps. They were eliminating that. And then when I came out of college, it was when the State Bureau of Investigation tried to recruit me because I was a female. The FBI tried to recruit me because I was a female. So I was right there on that edge of when people were wanting to move women into different positions. It wasn't easy. It was difficult. But I know Jim Hamer, who was the motorsports writer for the Asheville Citizen, he and I would cover the weekly races together at the Asheville track. And Jim said, you know, you could get a job easily on a daily newspaper because they're looking for female sports writers. That's who they're wanting to hire. And I said, but I don't want to get the job because I'm a woman. I want to get it because I'm good at what I do. And he said, look, he said, you got to change your attitude a little bit. He said, you've got to take the attitude that you can get it that way, but then you prove to them you deserved it and they made a good choice. So he said, use that to get your foot in the door. And as it turned out, that was one of the reasons I got the job with United Press International. I was the only female employed by UPI in the state of North Carolina for two and a half years. And they needed a female and they needed someone who knew Western North Carolina. And those were the two reasons I got hired. Do you feel that that proved to them that you're more than just the female hire, proved to them that you belong here? Do you think any of that motivated you through your career? It always did. And it, it didn't just motivate me in my career. It voted, motivated me in everything I've ever done. And I can remember being in elementary school and my mother saying, I don't know why you feel like you have to prove why you constantly feel you have to prove something to somebody. You don't have to prove anything to us, but I did. You know, I always felt probably up until probably mid 90s, not probably mid 1990s. I felt that I was always having to prove that I could do this. You know, I wanted to show people that you could be in the Miss Haywood County pageant. You could be in the junior Miss pageant or the Miss North Carolina teenager pageant. And you could be out there on equal footing in the job market as well, covering sports or doing whatever you wanted to do. You know, you didn't have to be categorized as one or the other. You could be all things. Now that you sit here reflecting on your career, do you think you ever identified why uh, that was so strong for you? The only thing I can think of that maybe triggered it was society saying, you can't do that, you're a girl. Girls don't do that. You talked about how you were able to gain new layers to yourself when you went to college. And a lot of times people struggle with, with reflective stance and, and understanding that uh, I may be different from where I grew up, but it sounds like you just grabbed it right by the horns and went with it. I want to go towards your early career as you're transitioning into a journalist. Uh, you said you had to widen your scope in the beginning years. Uh, what was due diligence in a career like that back then? It's it's having good editors and learning from your mistakes so that you don't make the same mistake again. 
Uh, for example, when I was covering high school football and basketball in the Waynesville paper before I went to UPI, I lost my temper with a high school coach who had gotten fired because the story he had promised me he would tell me when he was going to resign. And he it came out in the Asheville Citizen and I didn't get it. And of course, my managing editor comes in and throws the Asheville Citizen on my desk and wants to know why they had the story and I didn't. And I let my ego, my feelings get in the way of getting the story, which you should never, ever do. And as a result, instead of getting the story first and then letting the coach know what I thought about it, I let him know first and he hung up on me. So I learned that day, always keep your emotions in check. Get the story first. And then once you've got the story, then <laughs> if you have something to say, say it. <laughs> um, you know, I, I had fantastic editors all the way through my career. The state editor that I had when I was at United Press International, Fred McNeese, I learned so much from him, and I would have gladly worked my entire career, the, the rest of my career, for him. He was fair. He would not reprimand you in front of the other members of the Bureau. He would take you in private, but he would compliment you when you did well, but he would correct you when you did wrong. Some of it was a little sarcastic in a way. For example, when you're with the wire service, and you do the formula writing, you weren't supposed to take longer than 20 minutes, 30 minutes max to write a 400 word story. Well, if I was taking too long, Fred would just look at me and go, Deb, do we need to call the publisher? Is your novel about ready? <laughs> and I knew then I was taking too long. So when you say you're doing your due diligence, you've got to learn from each mistake you make so that you don't make it again. And you listen to your good editors. Uh, learn from those with the experience. At that point in your career, those early years, those six years, were there moments that uh, you look at that you triumphed that you're really proud of? Oh, yes. One was covering Richard Petty's 200th victory. And, you know, the other was breaking the story of the sugar that they found in Bobby Allison's gas tank, that if Gary Nelson hadn't taken the precautions that he did before going to Riverside, Bobby Allison wouldn't have won that championship. But one person recently pointed out to me that I was the first woman to cover NASCAR on a regular basis for an international wire service. And that hadn't even occurred to me. I had never even thought of that. But I was just happy that I was getting to, to cover NASCAR. And, you know, covering cup racing and all, uh, going to Richard Petty, going to Level Cross for the first time and sitting down and doing a, an interview with Richard Petty, you know, getting to cover Jim Valvano at sure. NC State, wow. you know, covering that basketball team at Carolina and um, Coach Smith. And, you know, the night that Michael Jordan and James Worthy and Brian, uh, Brad Doherty, uh, all those guys won that first national championship. UPI had me stationed on the four, in the Four Corners Bar in Chapel Hill <laughs> covering that. And the state editor later told me the reason he put me there was because he knew I wasn't going to get 
wasn't going to drink and get drunk like he would with some of his other reporters. <laughs> Those six years at UPI, I got to cover more major stories than a lot of people get to cover in a lifetime. But at the same time, I worried about the fact that maybe I was becoming very insensitive to things and to people because you see so much. And the the day that this started bothering me was the day that I had opened the bureau at five in the morning. I was on the 5 a.m. to 2 p.m. shift that day. I worked the morning a story out of Greensboro where a police officer had been shot in the face when he walked up to a car that he had stopped in what he thought was a routine traffic stop. That's how I spent my morning. I spent my afternoon working a story out of Winston-Salem where a man had gone into a daycare center and started stabbing the children while he chanted, dog food, dog food. Well, when I left the bureau, I felt like I had blood dripping from my fingers. I got to my apartment. I couldn't cry. It bothered me that I could not cry. And I thought, man, am I getting to the point to where I don't feel anymore? And then, of course, my health didn't do too well with the wire service either because we were on call 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. So it was it's a different lifestyle and you're on call. And I know I would wake up sometimes I would answer the phone. And I would answer UPI Deb Williams, and it would be a dial tone. There, it really wasn't ringing, but but I dreamed it, you know. Well, thank you for sharing that. I think a lot of times people don't recognize the hours and the labor that goes behind uh, maybe a, a a line in a newspaper or everything that goes into writing the books that you've been part of and. When you are in that time of of going through this and you said your health failed or it was challenged during those years, mm-hmm. was it what you wanted it to be? It showed me that I really wanted to be more in sports and be more in racing rather than general news. Let's talk about what makes you happy because that's where you would spend uh, the bulk of your career transitioning into NASCAR. You were in the glory days of that sport. Mm -hmm. Talk about some of the highlights that you experienced. Well, like I said, covering Richard Petty's 200th win. And when I think about not just what I covered, but the people that I've had the opportunity to meet the experiences that I've had, you know, going to New York every year for the Winston Cup Awards Banquet at the Waldorf Astoria and getting to see all the plays that I saw on Broadway and shopping in New York, just (laughs) just such an experience there. And, you know, traveling to San Francisco and Los Angeles area and Dallas-Fort Worth and Miami and knowing that I could drive in those areas and, um, you know, the some of the off-the-racetrack situations that are so pleasurable in remembering. The year that Mario Andretti was inducted into the International Motorsports Hall of Fame, they had the banquet and the induction ceremonies in Birmingham, Alabama, and it was televised live by TNN. 
and Bill Broderick had done the seating arrangements and Bill had put me at the table with Mario and the Italian ambassador to the United States and sitting there through dinner and listening to them talk in Italian <laughs> was just, I didn't understand a word they were saying, but it was so fascinating to me. There were so many special activities. There were a lot more social activities back then. When you sit down and you think about covering, being at Darlington for when Bill Elliott won the million and being there for Richard Petty's final race and Kowicki, Alan Kowicki winning the championship, or I saw the rise of Jeff Gordon, the Dale Earnhardt seven championships, and then the, the change that came along with the 21st century. It's so much. And, it, and what was really interesting was when NASCAR had its 50th anniversary, I was the editor of NASCAR Winston Cup scene then, and we were planning the features that we were going to have each week big occurrences of uh, that were historical in NASCAR. And I had never thought about it of how much of NASCAR's history I had been a part of <laughs> because I thought, okay, you know, the first strictly stock race, which was, of course, Cup now was 19, that was June 19th, 1949. Well, then I was born in 1954. You know, the first race car that I remember touching and looking into was Ralph Earnhardt's <laughs> when it was sitting in front of Presley's garage at the foot <laughs> of the Canton Hill when he was driving from Franken Hill to Presley. And it suddenly hit me that, my gosh, I saw Curtis Turner race, Lee Petty, Joe Weatherly. You know, I saw those people in the course when you were asking about family. You know, all of us in our family had different drivers. I had a cousin that was a Fireball Roberts fan. Daddy was a Lee Petty fan because of the way he took care of his equipment. I started out as a Rex White fan and then migrated <laughs> to a Richard Petty fan. And it never had dawned on me how much of it I had seen until we started planning those stories for that 50th year of NASCAR. But what I have discovered in all my years now, I just love high-performance cars. I just love racing. I, the 24 Hours of Le Mans has always fascinated me. I would love to be able to do the double. I would love to be able to cover the Indy 500 and then cover the 600, come down and cover the 600. I probably would sleep for two days, but that's what I would <laughs> like to do. You know, I loved covering the 24 Hours of Daytona. And hearing all the different languages spoke in the media center, Japanese and German and Italian, and it was so cool. And it's like I tell people, I love fast horses. I love fast cars, but fast men make me nervous. <laughs> Put the punctuation on that one. I think we'll all say that. <laughs> Deb, I find you absolutely just brilliant, fascinating. I There's so many questions uh, that I still have for you. And uh, just to continue on to this, the NASCAR part of your life, you're in this scene, you're traveling the circuit uh, with these uh, race teams and drivers and the whole community of it. It is predominantly men. Uh, how are you perceived? Well, my dad, first of all, when I was in my late teens, daddy told me, he said, you can't have it both ways. If you want to be one of the guys, you can I ever play the female card. 
you can't say, I want to be one of the guys and then turn around and say, no, that you can't do that because I want, he said, no, you've got to make up your mind which way you want it. You cannot have it both ways. So that was a good start. And the other thing was I've never dated a driver. I've never dated a crewman. Buddy Baker and I had this discussion one time and Buddy said, yeah. And he said, as a result, you are respected in that garage. He said, if you lose that respect, you're done for. But he said, right now you're respected. And it's like I told him, I said, look, I've worked too long and too hard to get where I am to throw it away because I had the hots for somebody one night. This is what pays my bills and puts food on my table. And Richard Petty would speak to me in the the garage. And a lot of the veteran reporters who also realized that I was interested in the sport, I wasn't I was not interested in dating anybody or finding a husband. Those that had been around the sport for 15 and 20 years. And with me being with UPI, that was a big help because it was an international wire service and everybody wanted that, you know, coverage from the wire service. But those veteran reporters let me, quote unquote, hang out with them in the garage. You know, there were no press conferences unless somebody was making an announcement. You had to fight for your space at the gas pumps. You had, there were no lounges in the transporters where the lounges are today is where they carried the engines. And when you interviewed somebody, you interviewed them at the back of the transporter or sitting on tires. And when I would go into the garage, I'd only go in the garage when I hadn't needed to. I wouldn't go in there and hang out. But I honestly have been treated better in racing than I was treated in covering the stick and ball sports. The first time I ever covered a race at Darlington, which was either the spring, I want to say spring of 1980. When I find that credential, I'm going to frame it because I have it somewhere. But on that credential, it says no women allowed printed, no women allowed in pits. And, you know, after I blew my top, because I do have a quick temper. Between my my Irish, Cherokee, Indian and Dutch heritage, I have a very quick temper. So it was explained to me. That that was put on there because some of the men were getting their their girlfriends into the garage and the wives weren't getting in and the wives were there going, well, why? how come they're in there and I'm not? And that was the reason they had put that on there. Of course, I went back the next time I went back. It wasn't there and it hasn't been there since. Is there a relationship that you had in your tenure? And uh, I know you're still active uh, in writing, but is there a particular relationship uh, and trust that you had with someone, be it a driver, team owner, someone in the industry that that you look to as kind of career defining for yourself? Well, I had some good mentors. Humpy Wheeler's been a good mentor to me. Don Miller, who was the president of Penske Racing South, has been a good mentor to me. Um, you know, Humpy gave me some advice when I was thinking about leaving the wire service. And Sunbelt Video at that time was going to start the show Inside NASCAR. So Bob Pierce, who ran Sunbelt Video at that time, was talking to me about coming over there to work as a writer, reporter, researcher on the show. And I talked, I never will forget, Humpy and I were sitting on pit wall at Charlotte. And I was discussing it with him. And Humpy said, well, I think you should go. Because he said, if you do, you will be among 20, 25 percent of the people in this country who have had experience in newspaper, wire service and TV. 
and that will make you much more valuable in the job market. And I can tell you that going and learning how to write video scripts and TV scripts really, really improved my feature writing because I was better at hard news and investigative reporting than I was feature writing. And I still have trouble with columns. I'm just not a columnist at all. I'd rather present the facts to the people and and then be my opinion. I figure they don't care about my opinion. Knowing the characters that you got to come across in the paddock, uh, is there someone who uh, specifically shines out to you as, wow, that was a good person? Oh, wow. There's a lot of them. I would say there are more good people than bad. And as people learned you and became familiar with your ethics and your way of doing business, then they were able to tell somebody else and somebody else and all. Now, that doesn't mean they wouldn't pull jokes on me. Sure. You know, but it's just like if they didn't pick on you, they didn't like you. You know how that is in racing. If they don't like you, they just ignore you. So if they pick on you, that's a good sign that they like you. I honestly can't be fair and name one particular person because there was so many and still are. Well, as you said, you um, spending the, the bulk of your career in NASCAR, you got to cover some of the highs of the last couple decades from the rise of Jeff Gordon, seeing the championships of Dell Earnhardt, uh, all the recent history that we've had as well. But um, unfortunately, you've also been on the side of uh, immense tragedy in the sport. How did you handle, um, well, particularly Dell Earnhardt's death? Hmm. That was that was tough on everybody. Uh, I have never seen a media center so emotionally upset overall as a whole as that night. And, you know, because we all travel together and we're all there so much, we're more like family. We're closer in family than than some of our own blood relatives. And when you had the general news people coming in for that press conference on that, you could feel the feeling like we resented you being there. You never cared about us now. Why are you invading our our property at this time? You know, and there was one reporter that sat across from me that night and he would write for a little bit and then he'd wipe tears away and he'd write a little bit more and then he'd wipe tears away. Everybody was more stunned. It, it was a one of disbelief. A former driver's mother told me one time, she said, I never worried about him until we lost Dale Earnhardt. And she said, when we lost him, I realized it could happen to anybody. And she said, that's when I started worrying about him. Everybody was in shock. And because, and it's like his, his own mother told me, I never thought I would lose him in a race car. You know, everybody looked at him as Superman. This is one person that could do anything with a race car, bring it back from the edge or whatever. And you never thought about him going in a race car. So you have to, unfortunately, what you have to do in this business is you have to put your personal feelings aside until you get your job done. And I learned how to do that. And then when I'm in private is when I cry because you're on deadline and you have to turn on that stoic. I don't feel it right now. 
And then when you get in private and you start thinking about it, that's when you cry. But it was interesting. I was talking to a young reporter a few months ago and she made a statement. And this shows you this. This is to the NASCAR's credit in developing the car, a safer car. She said, you know, I've never had to cover a death of a driver. And I told her, I said, I hope you never do. I said, it's one of the most devastating things you will ever have to do because you're so close to them and you get to know them as people. And when you get to know them as people and they're not just a rung on your career ladder, you you do get emotionally involved. And when I look back at all the drivers whose deaths I've had to cover, I started to cry because you do it and you don't think about it. And then when she said that to me and I thought how fortunate she is that she has never had to cover a driver's death because I covered Moroso, Kawicki, Davey Allison, Tim Richmond, Neil Bonnet, Rodney Orr, Dale Earnhardt, Kenny Irwin Jr., Blaze Alexander. I mean, you know, you just, and when you start thinking about all of them and the the tragedy that I've seen, and uh, you can't dwell on it. You, You cannot dwell on it. But it was really interesting, the gentleman who used to be the PA announcer at Charlotte, but he had told me that the property where my house is built, which was, that was the Concord Speedway, where he started his announcing career when he came back from Vietnam. And he told me that it was the track where Dale Earnhardt drove his first ever race. It was a dirt track. Well, a week and a half after we lost Dale, this gorgeous hawk showed up on my property. And I named it Earnhardt. And it's still here. And I mean, it will sit in my on my property where you would, th- it'll sit on my lamppost beside my driveway. If it's in my field when I walk out or the tree beside my driveway, it won't leave when I walk out. <laughs> it'll sit there. And uh, what was interesting was I uh, hadn't seen him for a while. And he showed back up. It was either Friday afternoon or Saturday morning. He might have been in the field when I walked out Saturday morning. And I went to a friend's to help fill baskets or bags for the homeless. And the first thing I found out when I walked in the door was we'd lost Danny Earnhardt. And I thought, that's why the hawk showed back up. Wow. And he was still out there the other day. You know, that that day we lost Earnhardt is still just as clear in my mind. And I can tell you everything that was there. I can tell you what I said on the radio before that for last lap to my photographers, just as if it was yesterday. That's one of those things that will always be embedded in my mind. Closest I ever came to walking away from this sport was when we lost Adam Petty. Because I was at Richard and Linda's the day that Kyle brought Patty and Adam home from the hospital when he was born. I had been there with that young man ever since he'd grown up. And when he was testing at Texas to prepare for his cup debut, and I talked to him and I said, Adam, you make me feel so old. And he said, oh, Deb, don't feel old. That was the closest I came to walking away. But then when Ryan Newman had his wreck at Daytona in 2020, and I had my second book I ever wrote was on Newman. And of course, I worked with him at Penske when I worked there and I made up my mind that night if we lost Newman I was leaving I'd had enough fortunately we didn't fortunately the car worked everything worked 
I think what I see in your emotion is a career that has been so rich in experience for you, so in depth of connection and such an earlier part of your career where you were struggling if you had become too insensitive. How powerful has this motorsports journey been for you? It's been everything. It's, um, and I'm still living it as far as I'm concerned. Yes, ma'am. You know, it's, it's like I told Marcus Smith one time, I said, I'm like your dad. I'll retire when I die. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, it's like I told one person, I said, you know, when the day comes that you can stand on pit road at Daytona for the beginning of the Daytona 500. And when those 40 cars come out of that fourth turn to take the green flag for the start of a new season and for the start of the Daytona 500, if you don't have chills go up and down your back, that's when it's time to leave and walk away. You don't have any business being here. And, um, you know, I really hadn't thought about it, but it's been more than I could have ever hoped for. It's been absolutely wonderful. It's uh, I've been so blessed and so fortunate with the people who have helped me right down from Richard Petty saying, your taillights out on your car, get it fixed. <laughs> you know, it's been a very, it is a very rich life of people, of friends that watch out for each other, that help each other. You know, I've had to turn to the 20 and 30 year olds to teach me how to do social media. How do I do Twitter? How do I set up this? How do I do that? You know, I'm having to ask them. It's a community. You know, I knew from the first time I saw Charlotte Motor Speedway when I was 13 that one day I wanted to live in this area and work in stock car racing. And that's all I ever wanted to do. And you did it. Yeah. It was interesting how you uh, goals. I've always been a goal oriented person. And I say that I set that at 13 when I was graduating from high school. One of our neighbors gave me tickets to the 600 for a high school graduation. Well, I had to get special permission from the principal to come to it because it was the same day as baccalaureate and baccalaureate was required. But while we were waiting to go through the gate that day, I looked up at the press box and I promised myself that I'd be there in 10 years. <laughs> I made it in seven. <laughs> yes, you did. <laughs> of course you did. <laughs> Deb, what's the greatest compliment you've received? I'd have to say two. One is when Bud Moore's son, Greg Moore, says that it was known in the garage that Barney Hall and I were the two people you could trust. You could tell them anything and bounce things off of them. And if you didn't want it public, they weren't going to say anything about it. The other one was the night of that International Motorsports Hall of Fame dinner that I'm telling you about with Mario and all. And that night was the night that it was known as the Henry T. McLemore Award then. That night when Chris O'Connor and Mackie announced the winner was the first, I became the first woman to have ever won the award. And it's voted on by the former winners. And you have to have, I think it's 70% of the vote that you get it. So for all those men to feel like I deserve that for continued motorsports, for continued excellence in motorsports journalism was, you know, fantastic. But then at the end of it, the inductees and the winners 
all came up on stage at the end of the TNN broadcast. And then the others came up and Richard Petty came up and leaned down and whispered in my ear and said, I'm so proud of you. Deb, you have proved to your community in motorsports. Uh, you've proved to us that you were exactly where you were supposed to belong. Have you proved it to yourself? Yes. It's interesting you should say that because, you know, it was in those 1990s when I won the Russ Catlin Award. And then when I became the first woman to win the National Motorsports Press Association Writer of the Year Award, when I became the, the first one to do that, and then after not only did I become the first woman to win the, the National Motorsports Press Association Writer of the Year Award, but then to win it twice and to be the editor of Scene. And it, when I was editor of Scene, of course, granted, NASCAR was exploding at that time. We became the largest motorsports publication newspaper in the country. And when American City Business Journals bought it, circulation was at 70,000. That's how much Griggs Publishing had grown it. And when I left at the end of 03, we were at 140,000 paid circulation. And then when you look at the pass-along rate, you know, it was even more than that. Yeah, I, uh, you know, I'm always still finding things I want to do. But as far as having that gnawing inside of me that I have to prove this or I have to prove that, I don't have that gnawing anymore. Well, now that you've found that piece, and as you said, uh, it'll uh, you're going to work until you just can't no longer. How yeah. do you want to be remembered? For the person who did not use these people as a rung on her career ladder but rather she really cared about them as people and truly cared about their lives and and them and their families. And they weren't just a rung on the career ladder. All right. We're going to transition into the hot lap. Now I heard you recently uh, took a ride in a Ferrari (laughs) though. No. Oh, that was fun. I had always wanted to drive a Ferrari. Of course, I love sports cars. I have always had champagne, champagne taste on a cooler budget, <laughs> but I was so excited. I just casually mentioned that to Cindy Sisson that I had always wanted to drive a Ferrari. And the next thing I know, she is making my wish come true. And it was unbelievable. <laughs> just having that much power in your hands, I immediately wanted to take it to Charlotte Motor Speedway <laughs> and put it on the Roval is what I wanted to do. <laughs> okay. You're probably going to answer this question for me, though, but let's say you're on a road trip. Uh, what car are you driving? Ferrari. Okay. So you're on a road trip. You're in a Ferrari. Uh, we know you're at the you're holding the power uh, in the wheel of the Ferrari. Who's in the right seat with you? Well, if Leah Pruitt won't get jealous, I'll say Tony Stewart. Oh, Okay, so Tony Stewart's riding in the right-hand seat with you. There's, uh, what's on the radio? <laughs> ZZ Top, sharp-dressed man. All right, where are you guys headed? Oh, can we make it the cannonball run? Yeah, um, that sounds fun. I think that sounds like a good road trip. In a Ferrari, Tony Stewart, ZZ Top on the radio doing the cannonball. I think that's a pretty mm-hmm. epic adventure you have ahead for you, Deb. <laughs> 
Well, as we um, let you go here on the Women Shifting Gears, driven by Hemmings Podcast, uh, I want to go. It's 2022. You're at the Daytona 500. The green flag drops. What emotion is going through your body? Well, those next-gen cars are so loud that I can tell you that standing on pit road, you're going to feel that thunder come off of turn four when they go to come down to take the green flag. And I think I'll feel the vibration as they're coming off turn four to take that green flag. And once again, those chills will go up and down my spine, and it's going to go, yep, we got another season going. And uh, it'll be, man, this is great. I'm so happy I'm here. Couldn't wish for anything more. What a life you've lived, Deb. That's been awesome. Absolutely awesome. Couldn't couldn't have done it without a lot of help, though. You know, nobody ever achieves on their own. They've got plenty of people helping them along the way, and I had a lot of people helping me along the way who believed in me. Thank you, Deb. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Women Shifting Gears podcast driven by Hemmings. Hemmings your marketplace for the car collector enthusiast since 1954. This podcast is produced by GS Events.